when you go see Springsteen play, if you see him one time or you've seen him a hundred times, he plays born to run like he's never played it before. There's a passion to his mastery. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Prego Sandwich, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. I love reading how the best sports teams win. Imagine this. You're dealing with multimillionaires, huge egos, and teams and players changing on a yearly basis. So how the F do they consistently win championships? And what the hell can we learn about business from running these professional sports teams? So I'm very excited today to talk to you about Michael Lombardi. Yes, same last name as the trophy. He worked with the Patriots on three Super Bowls and so much more in the NFL. His book, Gridiron Genius, is an amazing insight in what he learned working with the best NFL coaches. Gridiron Genius, check it out. I read it. I loved it. And so much of this applies to your own business. In this conversation today, you're going to enjoy three major things. Numero uno, how we went from working for Burger King coupons, yes, literally, to being the assistant coach staff on the New England Patriots Super Bowl championship team. Number two, how do you build an elite culture for your organization? And number three, how is influences outside of the NFL cross-pollinate and allow a fresh approach to what he does? Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more surprises along the way. Enjoy. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out Roav Eyewear. This is not a paid placement or affiliate deal or anything like that. It's R-O-A-V-Eyewear.com. They fold super small and amazing for traveling. I use them. I like them. I just want to give them a shout out. Go check it out. R-O-A-V-Eyewear.com. And a special shout out to the listeners just like you. This is to Yossi Pels of the USA. He left an iTunes review saying, who needs an MBA when you have the Noah Kagan Presents podcast? Dude, that's too kind. I love you. And I love every single one of you listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, make sure you leave a review on iTunes. I check every single one of them. It makes my day. People should say yes to more things. What does that mean to you? Or what's how's that happened for you? You know, I think when you start out, people say, hey, how did you get into personnel? Or how did you get into coaching? And you say, well, I volunteered and I went to work for a guy who paid me no money in Burger King coupons. You know, who says yes to that, right? People that want to do something, the circumstances really don't matter. They just do it. You know, there's no perfect job. There's no perfect time to move. There's no perfect, nothing's perfect. You know, you just make it perfect when you go by saying, yes, you've created a situation where you can. You know, with that experience, I'm still baffled because you went and worked at UNLV for free for Burger King coupons. Like who who does? Yeah. That? Like, what were you expecting? And like, was it a crappy experience? Was it the best ever? Well, I mean, I needed to get started. You know, that's my that was my whole speech today. It was about just get started, you know, get somewhere and get started and figure it out. Once you get there, you'll figure it out. Look, I, I had to learn. I needed to, to explore. I needed, I wasn't going to get paid a salary. And, you know, I have a guy, a friend of mine who basically wouldn't do it. You know, we grew up together and he was like, no, I got to get paid, man. And, you know, now he's selling medical supplies. How bad do you want it? Let's take one step back and uh, super, just to give you a background, I run a software business and I read your book. It was recommended to me by a friend. I think Ryan Holiday or someone okay. recommended it. David gave it to me. And Ryan's a friend. I love any of his recommendations I like as well. And your book is honestly one of the best I've read this year. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. Gridiron Genius, Michael Lombardi. I'm, we're going to email it out. And I'll, I'll put it on the show. But the book about, I just love hearing how sports organizations work so that in my companies and and a lot of the listeners' companies, uh, they can learn. Yeah. One thing just to, to jump into it before we even get into like organizations and all, all the stuff that you've been experiencing in your life. Why do you care about football so much? Like, what is it about football? Because to me, I'm like, man, it's just a game. And Yeah, but it's, for me, it's why do people care about chess? It's because the, they see the board differently. 
you know, you see 11 pieces or how many pieces are on a chessboard. Football, people see 22 pieces. And yet, you know, there's a, a different way you visualize it. And so football for me is there's so many elements that come into play, the team building, the strategy of each week, the culture, all these facets that go into building a, a competitive championship team, you know, fascinate me. And then to be able to endure and try to do it another year is really, I think, fascinating. Was that always for you? Is that, did you know that was your calling or how did you recognize that was your calling early on? Yeah. You know, I mean, like I wrote in the book, when I was a kid, I started playing stratomatic baseball with Danny Reynolds and Michael Sanino in my mother's kitchen. And we wore out that kitchen table, man. And I just loved it. I loved stratomatic baseball from building the team to, you know, putting guys in the lineup. It was a card game. We were always 12 years old, but that was powerful. And that's why I went into personnel because I didn't want to be a coach. I wanted to be more than that. I wanted to be a team builder. Even though it was baseball, that notion of building a team fascinated me. When I read Travis Colbert and Travis, when I read The Barbarians at the Gate, you know, that idea of that company where they come and take over companies and rebuild them, that's something that always fascinated me. That just appeals to me. And I thought football was the same way. And so for you, from that early age, when you're doing the baseball cards you and then the baseball sets, you're like, I'm going to get involved in, in personnel football, no matter what it takes. No matter what it takes, you know, like, the, you know, the, the, there's a saying, the world gets out of the way for people that know where they're going. And I knew where I was going. And I just decided to take a course and Valley Forge Military Academy allowed me to get on the right course. Wow. What was it like when you volunteered? So you go to work at UNLV and you, you because I, I will say, Michael, like reading your book, I know this maybe didn't sound like, I felt nervous because you worked at these amazing organizations and you're like, I quit and I'm going to go figure something else out. I'm going to go be a part of something else. And there's only so many teams in NFL. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I refuse to be defined by, you know, I'm going to hang on in the NFL and crave for a paycheck. I'm embarking on a second career. I did three Super Bowls. I love Belichick. I'd work for Bill forever. But you know, you also have to you feel like you're valued by the people that are paying their salary and you can do something that offers it. So I wasn't just going to work to work. I wanted to have a second career. I wasn't going to retire at 65 because I've got this great pension. I wanted to spend the next, you know, 20 years like Coach Ravlin, who's one of my heroes and mentors and, and build something bigger. And writing this book, to me, I always knew it was a vehicle to try to get there. Now, the challenge is, as David Crosby eloquently says, is when artists give the record companies their first album or their first work, it's 10 years of their life. The true talent comes in your second book, your third book. That's where you find out whether you have talent or not. That's what I'm up against. Interesting. What are you thinking about for your next one? You know, I'm bordering between just it being all culture. And, and really, I think there's a great book called Finding the Winning Edge by Coach Walsh that went out of date. It's on every coach's desk. I hope I can... Uh, you know, my book is on people's desk as well. You know, my football book, as you can probably tell, Gridiron Genius is really, it's a business book disguised as a football book. <laughs> yeah. Because all the lessons in football are practical to business. Yeah. I devoured the book because of that. Yeah. So I don't know. So I'm a little bit in between. Do I write the history of, do I say, okay, here are the top hundred players, the, the book of football, or do I write a book? about how to really truly build culture and what really culture looks like. Because my book is about culture, but I could go deeper into what, what it really looks like. How are you going about making that decision? I think like you make most decisions, you go for long walks, you know, <laughs> and you think and you ponder. 
your best writing, Noah, I'm sure it's for you too, is when you go to sleep and just before you fall asleep, that's your, like I could win a Pulitzer Prize with the paragraphs I could write the second <laughs> I fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, I actually had some good thoughts on the bicycle two days ago. I was like, man, this bicycle time is good time. You know, I wish, I told this to Holiday, who I love. I told Ryan, I said, I wish I would have read some of his books earlier in my life because when I started writing Gridiron Genius, I really was always of the mindset, you know, get there, work, be at your desk, do this, do that. And then when I wrote the book and I would spend an hour of my time, you know, going for a walk in the morning and I felt like I wrote better, I'm like, wow, that's, I should have done this. Like I, I told these kids today, you know, at Valley Forge, they have two and a half hours of study hall every night. Like, don't ever lose your study hall time. You know, don't ever lose it. Like, yes, you'll be in college and you have to study. But when you get into business, you should spend an hour on your mind and an hour on your body every day. Like, you got to read an hour every day. If you don't read an hour every day, you're not getting it. Yeah, that's such a great reminder. When you were working in the NFL, did you already know your next step was the book? And you're kind of having notes and stuff like that? Or is it after you finish? Well, I love writers. Like, I, I mean, as much as I love football, I love writers. I mean, I have always admired great writing. And I've always admired great writers, whether it's John Irving, the novelist, you know, whether it's Robert Carroll, the historian, or David McCullough. You know, I love reading something and feeling like when I put it down, Wright Thompson from ESPN, I read his stuff and I'm like, oh my God, this guy's great. So I've always had this affection for great writing. and. You know, Sinatra Has a Cold by Gay Talese. I mean, God, I could read that every day, you know? And so... What was that called? Sinatra? Sinatra Has a Cold. It was an Esquire magazine. He went out to do... This is what I love about why you have to be curious in life. Esquire magazine asked Gay Talese to go do an article on Sinatra and had it all worked out. So he flew from New York to L.A. and he got to the Beverly Hills Hotel. He called Sinatra's agent said, I'm here to do my interview with Mr. Sinatra. And the guy said, uh, well, Mr. Sinatra has a cold. And so that conversation went on for six months and Gabe Talese basically talked to everybody but Sinatra and wrote this incredible column, Sinatra has a cold. You know, and so I love writers. I've always loved writers. And so when I was in the league, I would read, because Coach Walsh told me to read a lot. I would read. I didn't read in college. I didn't read in high school. I was a horrible student. And I didn't spend enough time on that. And I would read books and I would say, God, I, I want to do this. And then eventually when I got to Oakland, I knew that I worked for Walsh, who was incredible. I worked for Al, who was really talented. And then I knew once what well, Belichick once started to win, I knew I was around greatness. You know, coming back to a little bit earlier in your journey, I am curious to hear what was it like? Because you knew you wanted to be in football. You, you admired this and you knew the personnel. What was the UNLV experience like? Because I think sometimes it's hard to reflect back like, yeah, you know, I put in all the work, but I think a lot of people want to get something in life, but maybe they're not willing to put in that work. So I'm curious some of the stories or experiences you had working for free at UNLV. You know, I never viewed it as working for free. I never viewed it as doing, you know, like I was just putting in the time. I viewed it as my future. I viewed it as an investment. I viewed it as I'm a blank tape. I don't know anything. I got to learn as much as I can learn. And I got to take notes and I got to try to retain everything that I read, everything that I learn from people that I'm around and be curious as hell. And was there anything at UNLV or any books that you've read for running a successful? Because I think for myself lately, I've been really focused on sports biographies and sports books because it's like how they're putting together these teams and like how that can relate to business. Is there any like any specific resources or people that impact your career that you read around? 
the guy that probably impact my career more than anybody is I'm driving as I wrote about in Gridiron Genius is Tom Peters. I mean, Tom Peters to me is a god because Walsh said to me, "Do you know who Tom Peters is?" And I had no idea. I thought he was talking about some punter from South Dakota, you know. And he said, "Well, you need to read in search of excellence. You need to understand what this man's talking about." And so I did. And so, like, I just love the way Tom presents his stuff. I love his thought process. I love his energy at his age. I love his energy when he wasn't older. I love everything about him. And so he kind of like was a role model for me in terms of think differently. Because as I wrote in the book, if everybody's thinking alike, no one's thinking, you know. And so I think that was really important. And he really captured my imagination and, and he stirred me into read other things, whether it's Jim Collins, whether it's Warren Bennis, whether it's Peter Drucker or anyone, every, anyone else. So that's what I tried to do. Who was the second one? Warren Dennis? Warren Bennis, B-E-N-N-I-S. Hmm. These are the organizational thinkers and leaders. Yeah. I mean, I found myself really gravitating to that because I thought you could apply it. Like everything I read, whether it's, you know, when I was talking about David Crosby a little while ago, I've been obsessed with, you know, you're obsessed with sports books. I've been obsessed with 70s songwriter books. Okay. And, you know, reading about Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, reading about Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell, and Carol King, and reading about, you know, the Eagles and all that. It's just fascinating to me. And so there's always something you can pick up and apply it to your own life. Apply it to your business. There's always something. What was it about the Crosby, Stills, and Young and this era of people that you find fascinating or that you've taken away? I think it's all this conversation we're having. There they are. They're all within a, about a two-mile radius of the Troubadour, which is in, right on the border of Santa Monica and West Hollywood in L.A. They're basically working for nothing, making no money. They're chasing a dream, and yet they're never too worried about where they're going. They're never caught up in in the moment, they're just caught up in trying to get better at their craft. They're just Jackson Brown constantly working on a song for eight hours just to get better. I mean, I think that's, and their ability to be creative and their ability to think and create songs and create different ways of speaking in terms of their audience. I find it fascinating. I really do. I find it completely fascinating that they, they're divergent in thought and creative in thought at the same time, which is awfully hard. How come you didn't want to, for the rest of your life, just focus on the personnel work? Like, what made you want to transition out of that? Well, you know, the league kind of tells you who you are. I mean, the league doesn't really, you know, older us older guys in the league, uh, we get phased out quickly. If you, you know, experience, you you know, you get in a situation, you're not, you're not the brand new car. You got fired at Cleveland. You don't know what you're doing. We need a young guy who's never been fired before, right? So, you know, we don't need Lombardi. He got fired at Cleveland. So. He does. What does he know? You know, you get one chance at that. You know, if you screw it up or people perceive you not to be successful, if you ask 90 percent of America, was Bill Belichick successful in Cleveland? They would say, oh, absolutely not. Yet he really was. I mean, he took over a three and 13 team, turned us was six and seven in the second first year there, ended up six and ten. You know, the second year was seven and nine. The third year, because of injuries, was seven and nine. And then he went and then won 11 games. So. To me, it's just like people just – what I've learned in the NFL is you have to be electable. You're never selected on your talent. You've got to carry the Southern primary. If you can't carry this, you can't get in. <laughs> I mean, at your last job with the, the Patriots, were you fired or what happened at that? No, I wasn't fired. I just contractually – my contract with the Browns had expired, and I would like to have done a new contract with the Patriots. that They felt that the contract should have been in some area. 
I didn't feel it was in that area. I felt my value was deeper than that. So it was time to move on. You know, we do value our work, you know, and when you get older in life, you feel more comfortable in your own ability. You feel more comfortable in what you bring to the table. You know, you're not that desperate kid begging for a job when you're coming out of UNLV. That is something I was curious about. The UNLV, one, I appreciate you saying about the old because, you know, I'm 37. As I get older, I definitely am like, am I going to get outdated? And am I secure with myself? And I do think it's becoming more confident and more comfortable. Like, this is who I am and, and my skills and so forth. I was curious going back to the UNLV. How did you transition from that into working in these with these amazing people? Did you identify like, that's an amazing person. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be with them? No, actually, you know, I, the one person I wanted to work with my whole life that I would go to coaching clinics when I was in college to, just to listen to him talk was Bobby Bowden, the head coach of Florida State. I wanted to work for Coach Bowden in the worst way. I must have sent Coach Bowden 10,000 letters. No way. Oh, I had typewriter. I would write a letter a week to Coach Bowden. I couldn't get on. The rules of this era was you had a coach at the school to be a graduate assistant. You had to graduate from the school to become a graduate assistant. And so there was no jobs and he didn't offer me a free. I would have gone for free if he would have offered it to me because I heard him talk at a clinic and I thought, wow, that guy's unbelievable. I want to work for him. That was the only guy that I said I want to work for. And then everything else has been serendipitous because of just timing. Like when I was in UNLV, uh, uh, director of college scouting, Tony Rosano came through and uh, asked me if I was interested in being a, a, a low paid assistant need Bill Walsh to go, you know, yeah, hell yeah, I'm in on that. You know, I'll do that. So I moved to the Bay Area and made $20,000 in 1984, no money at all. Could barely pay my rent. I mean, I lived, they said I lived in Menlo Park, but I really lived in East Palo Alto. When East Palo Alto was bad, yeah, like, it was that. bad. Like now, it, and how the world comes full circle, my wife and I's son got married at the Four Seasons in Palo Alto or East Palo Alto. And literally my first apartment was maybe a hundred yards from that hotel when I was robbed numerous times. That's scary. I mean, one, one thing I want to highlight. So I think you maybe don't give yourself enough credit or maybe you do, but like the fact that you reached out, you knew who you wanted to go work for and you reached out 10,000 or however many thousands of times to uh, make it happen. Well, I mean, I'm a son of a barber. My father works really hard. So I do have a work ethic. You know, my father's 92. He still cuts hair every day. So he gave me a great work ethic, and I don't mind working on things I like. When I worked in my uncle's garbage truck, I wasn't very a hard worker. I hated that, right? But when I found passion, I talk about this in my presentations. I've learned this in life. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this 10,000-hour thing, and he's so right. You need to have mastery over a subject, and 10,000 hours is probably the correct amount of time. But more than anything, and what I write about in the book with Springsteen is when you go see Springsteen play, if you see him one time or you've seen him a hundred times, he plays born to run like he's never played it before. There's a passion to his mastery. That's how you really grow, get going where you want to go. Belichick's got passion with his mastery. And so those two elements combined. Michael Jordan had passion with his mastery. That's where greatness comes in. I think that I've always had the hard work and I've had the awareness to try to just meet any challenge and say yes, like I talked to those kids about today. So when you joined Bill Walsh, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I was there during that era. I remember as a kid, it was it was crazy. Montana, Lot, and Rice, all this stuff. What were some of the the stories or uh, experiences that like stood out for you about that defined Walsh and the San Francisco organization? Well, I mean, you know, when you're there and you're observing it, you really don't know they stand out until you reflect back on time. 
I mean, the fact that we were in this little building, the 7-Eleven of Atta Street, which basically was uh, like, uh, I can't even imagine how small it was, you know, and, and the facilities were not very nice. Yet, you know, we were in this building and it was, and it didn't bother us. We had one field of, of artificial turf that I think was 50 yards and we had a grass field that might have been 40. And that was it. And we practiced out there every time. We had a weight room that was part inside, part outside, part covered, not uncovered. Nothing got in the way of the, of what we were doing. The attention to detail was incredible. Everybody knew what their job was. I think when I reflect back on my time there, I'm really aware of culture really starts with job description. Culture mm-hmm. starts with everybody understanding what they do. If you don't tell people what they do, and now we live in a world where we like, you know, nobody has offices, everybody's in cubicles, everything's open, right? Well, that's great. And, you know, we can all sing Kumbaya out after, after work. But if you don't really know what you do and you don't know how you're being evaluated, that intertwines into the culture and can make it go away. Walsh was a stickler for it. Walsh made sure everybody knew what their job was constantly, all the time. And he evaluated you on your job. And he expected you to evaluate yourself on your job. His standard of principles were there and never going to go away. Yeah, I've, I've read his book, The Squirrel Take Care of Itself, and, and I definitely recommend it. I think you, you talk about that in your book as well. And I, I, I was excited when you said he uses index cards. Uh, it's something I started using like a year ago. Maybe I got it from his book, but uh, just having index cards for my to-dos. Yeah, and he had that little pencil, like he'd got a stolen a bunch of them from the golf course. <laughs> you know, and he would write in his left hand and, and he would make himself notes. And, you know, and he had a way of organizing his mind. You know, it didn't have to be just like Belichick. I mean, Belichick has a way of organizing his mind that's unique to pretty much anybody I've seen. How so? Nothing slips under the cracks with him. He not necessarily doesn't always write stuff down, but he does pretty much write things down. You know, it's not like he has to have a certain pen or a certain paper or a certain notebook. It's kind of a combination of everything, but everything gets filled up. With these guys, is it that if we put them on any other team, they would create a winning team? Yeah, they're the difference of the quality. There's no doubt. If, if Belichick all of a sudden woke up in Buffalo, you know, not, now I'm not saying anything bad about Sean McDermott here. But if you put Belichick in, in Washington, and he had it clearly defined by the owner about what he could do culture-wise. Because that's the key component here. You know, Kraft allows Belichick, to, allowed him to build the culture. They now call it the Patriot way, but it's the culture that they're building. And without that, there's no chance. Most owners don't understand that. Most owners think, well, you know, if we get a better player here, we get a player there. They don't understand the culture, the foundation of the organization starts with their behavior. If you owned a team one, I'm curious which team you would buy. Let's just say you can buy any team in the NFL. I would buy the Redskins because I think the, when I grew up, the Redskins were great, right? And they're so bad now that it's embarrassing. And so, you know, I think that their owner doesn't understand. And I don't think they'll ever really be able to until they understand where they are culturally. I want to unpack that just a little bit. One, I, I got to say, Michael, one thing that's really impressive about you, and you call people out all the time. And I was like, in your book, I, I like cringed a little bit. I'm like, oh shit, he like called that guy out that he sucked uh, or this person was lazy. And you, you always say why. I don't think you do it without backing it up, but it's surprising. And it's refreshing. Like what you said about the Redskins owner. Let's just say that you put in, you know, Belichick or Walsh or one of the people that you really admire and you gave them free reign. What are they going to be doing to this organization? Because I think that's something that in business and sports and all this stuff that, you know, I selfishly want to take away and I want to learn more from you. All right, so the first thing they're going to do is they're going to make, before they sign the paper, they're going to have the authority to run the team in the manner that they want to run it. That means hiring, firing whoever they want. That means controlling the salary cap. 
That means getting a budget from the owner. That means no one steps in. That means that no one's going to be hired or fired in the building unless it goes through your desk. So the buck stops with you, right? So that's where, when it comes to the football operation, whatever you guys want to do on the business end, that's your demeanor. But then I'm going to control everything on the football end. I'm going to control the medical staff. I'm going to control the personnel department. I'm controlling the equipment man. And any questions that have to be asked about any one of those departments only come to me. You don't talk to those other people. They come to me because we're one voice here. And the voice starts and ends with me. And then I'm going to have job descriptions for every single person within this company. And everybody's going to understand, not a mission statement. Everybody's going to understand what the ultimate goal is we're trying to build here. And we believe truly that it's going to be a lot easier to train people than retrain people. So it's going to be some change in this organization because there's some people that you have working for you right now that we are not going to be able to change because change is hard for people. They're stuck in their own ways. And if you want to believe that we won Super Bowls 20 years ago doing it one way that we can't change when this isn't the right job. So it starts with that. And then we're going to build an organization based on cultural principles not based on trying to find a quarterback because we will find a quarterback, but we're going to have to build a foundation first before we go looking for it. We will scout inside out. We will find people that fit the criteria we set and we'll go look for it. Just dive in a little bit more into that. So what are the cultural things that Walsh and, and Belichick did that you know other businesses can learn from? Well, they come with a standard of excellence. So Walsh came in with a standard of principles. So he's 17 things that he wanted everyone in the organization to adhere to. Belichick has four, right? Do your job which he's going to define for you. Speak for yourself, which is what you should do. Don't talk about anybody else. You know, be attentive in meetings, right? And put the team first. No mission statement. There's a, the only sign that's in the Patriot building is that sign. Four things. Unpack those four things. Come speak for yourself. If somebody asks you a question about the medical department and you work in the equipment, my job is to work in the equipment. I want to be the best that I can be. Period. End of story. Go on to the next ones. Be attentive. Come to work. Get 1% better every single day. Not too hard. Try to improve your craft. Put the team first. You know, you might have to do something that is not in the best interest of you, but is in the best interest of the team. That's called mental toughness. I do that. So really, that's mental toughness. And then, you know, I'm going to define what your job is and you're going to do it. What are all these other, you know, tw- the other coaches, the 20, and there's 28 teams in the NFL? Sorry, 24? <laughs> 32. 32. What are the other 31 doing? Right, like if if Belichick, they're not doing that. They're they're definitely not doing that. They're not doing that because they don't have that kind of authority to do that. You know, they've got there's a great scene in JFK that uh, that talks about how Lyndon Johnson started to put the motions into the, the the Vietnam War after Kennedy passed away, and they talk about how Kennedy was a threat and and he wanted to splinter the CIA. And that was a real problem. This is in the movie. But what happens in organizations are when they splinter the head coaching's authority, they have a lot of different fashions. And it becomes a committee of approach to everything. And we know this. They've never dedicated a month to a committee, ever. So unless it's a paramilitary organization where one guy is a supreme commander, it's really difficult. So most of these other 28 teams, and I wouldn't say 28, I'd say 24, most of the other teams are just really, you know, work. They're in a committee mentality and that doesn't work. So you think they're more run by committee? They don't have the standards of excellence? Yeah. The two things that I, I definitely took away from your book and just like reading Belichick stuff and reading other things like Bill Walsh's stuff, it seems like the level of preparation that they put in was abnormal. Like the amount that they put into that stuff. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
you know, they're running the organization. They take their job seriously. Nothing that would go on at the Patriots or goes on at the Patriots or at the 49ers or when Bill was in Cleveland at the Browns that Bill didn't have final approval on, that Bill didn't have it because it all affects one another. The culture isn't about people running their own program. When you have a bunch of different people behaving in a matter what we call subcontracting, then all of a sudden the culture is going to get messed up. So they have to take a real hard approach to do everything. And it's a big job. I mean, it's a huge job. You know, people say, like, I got to get stuff off your plate. I got to move things around. Well, that's great, you know, but the reality of it is, is it really won't work because I can't get there. I need to know what's going on. I need to have it. It needs to be in the same style and the same manner that this organization is going to build on those principles. Do your job. You put the team first. Be attentive in meetings and speak for yourself. What do you think more companies can learn from how these organizations run? I think if they took away the mission statement, if instead of putting a mission statement in, they should write a paragraph. Robert Carroll, before he writes any book, and I learned this from him, and I think it's the best practice you can have for any business. Before he writes, he's only written five books, but now his sixth book came out on writing. But he writes a paragraph or two, no more, about what the book is really about. And every morning before he goes to write, he reads that paragraph. He rereads it again. Organizations need to define who they really want to be. It's not a mission statement. You know, you don't define yourself and want to be Super Bowl champs. You have to have a better plan than that. That's the dream. That's not a mission statement. We dream that. How do we do that? That's really important. So you're saying that like more companies could benefit just saying like, yo, let's write down the things that are most important or what exactly? No, I think what you have to do is you have to take it, like say you're in the pharmaceuticals, like we want to expand, put down exactly what you vision the company to be five years from now, two years from now. We want to be a global trendsetter in technology, whatever it is. You know, for a football team, it would be this. I want to be a big physical football team that relies on mental toughness. Okay, that's who we are. That's what we're going to set out to do. And we're going to do that. And that's why it's going to work. And then every morning when we come in, we're never going to get away from this. This is not, we're never losing sight of this. And it has to be a paragraph, no more, two, maybe two, about really who you want to be. And then you become it. The best example I can give you is when you go to the French Laundry, they only have eight things on the menu. They cook them all good. If you go to a diner, they have 50 things on the menu. You don't order surf and turf in a diner, right? Right. Why is In-N-Out Burger so successful? Because they just do... Five things, right? You know, you go to In-N-Out Burger, you're not looking to get the chicken filet sandwich or you're not getting the fish sandwich, you know? They don't have five paragraphs of who they want to be. They define themselves. Great success stories always define themselves and who they are. You go back to that. Now, people say, well, you have to expand your horizons to do that. Okay, great. Once we start going into areas that we don't know what we're doing, we're going to lose quickly. I'm guessing you've met with other owners and other coaches of the NFL. Do you observe when you've observed them? Is it just like the discipline's not there, the preparation, the tightness around the their things? Like, what do you observe when you see these other coaches? I think you see them that they don't have a broad picture. They don't have that thirty-five thousand view of what's going on. They've lost that. What do they have instead? Just like they're too narrow. They're too narrow focused. It's the next day, you know, the next day, the next day. You know, so they have what I call, and I break this down in the book. I talk about sustainable values and situational values, right? So when you have sustainable values, you're worried, you're not worried about the team today, tomorrow, next year. You're worried about the team today, tomorrow, and next year. When you have situational values, you base every decision based on the situation mm. at hand. I'll get rid of 
all this stuff to get a better guard. That doesn't work. Every decision is, in a sense, you make, you have to be able to look at it from five or six different viewpoints. If somebody walks in your office and says, we have to do A or B, send them back out and tell me, no, I want to know what A, B, C, D, and E, and F are. You spend a lot of time on scouting and recruiting and personnel. The two things I was kind of curious about was like, how do, especially at a sports team at these levels, like how do people trying to create excellence deal with the egos of these people? That's the hard part. That's what separates. Everybody wants credit, right? Everybody wants to be the guy. You know, Belichick hasn't done any commercials. Belichick doesn't want credit. He wants to win. And ego always gets involved in the way. And that's a real challenge. And then when you add money into it, money and ego, what are the two really the biggest fake? Someone told me, and I told this to Ryan before he wrote Ego is the Enemy. Somebody told me early in my career, I think I was at UNLV, they said, you know, ego is the cancer of this business. It's the truth. How have you dealt with it or have you, how have you seen them dealt with it effectively? Well, I've watched Belichick. I mean, you're no, no one's bigger than the team. Put the team first. That's how you deal with ego. Get players that value the name on the front more than the name mm. on the back. Get employees that value the company's success rather than their own individual success. When we all win, we gain success. When we all lose, nobody's around. So you think that starts right at the beginning, depending on who you bring in? Again, we're back to training. We're going to train you the right way. Interesting. And then the people that fit the team culture and the team principles stick and do well and the ones that don't. Right. We're going to scout inside out, not outside in. We're going to look for people that have the traits and profile. And we're going to try to find people that do that. If we don't, they're not coming in here. If they don't have those traits or characteristics, they're not coming in. Remember, scouting and evaluation and hiring are never about finding. They're about eliminating. People confuse this. It's about elimination. The FBI doesn't pick up a phone directory and say, let's go find some serial killers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sounds about right. I mean, tell me more, a little bit more about your process because it's, it's very, you know, similar parallels with businesses and hiring people. You know, some of the things you, you eliminate as you're trying to find the right fits. Right. So when you build a team, it's a lot easier because you first thing Belichick and I did together in 1991 was build a grading system. We put together a grading system because the only way we were ever going to build a team that we wanted, the only way we were going to go back to those two paragraphs that we had was by having to develop a grading system. Because we're dealing in the college draft. We're dealing in pro personnel. We need to be able to say, this player's coming in, fits this profile, and here's why. And that's how it starts. It starts with the basics, you know, job descriptions, hiring practices. What are you looking for? Write down, like I tell guys who want to become head coaches. They all want to become head coaches. I said, well, do you have a job description for everybody that you want working for? Well, no, I, I just, well, do you have a profile of the person you want in every job? No. Well, how do you expect to become a head coach? How do you expect to become a head coach? How do you expect to run an organization? You have a job description for what you want the job to be, but you also have the job profile of what you want the guy to be. Say you want him to be from, you know, West Point or Army or, you know, Navy or the Air Force. You want a Marine background. Say you want a Jesuit background. Say you want, I want a liberal arts person who's broad, you know, whatever it is, write it down. Then go look for that. Yeah, I mean, it's impressive with, uh, especially with sports going through that i think that you're right though it kind of gave me the vision of like within a team within a company it's like who are the different players you're looking for and being intentional about the right criteria and then being able to grade them consistently yeah i mean i think it's really important to know what you want again it's always about look ray, think about this sometimes we get some incredible messages that we ignore ray Kroc did not make any money until he figured out he was in the real estate business not the hamburger business right 
once we figure out who we really are, the world, there's no one's going to stop us. The problem is trying to figure that out. And if you're a farmer who's always digging up the crop every year, you're never going to find it out. So is it going for walks? I guess that's part of it. I think it is. Follow the carpenter rules. Measure twice, cut once. I mean, I've been so fortunate to be around some incredible people, but some people that aren't in sports, Peter Kaufman, who runs Glen Aaron, you know, has become a friend of mine. I mean, he's taught me so much and, you know, talk about false duality and being able to understand there's more solutions to an existing problem. You just got to search for it. Who is that again? Well, I call it false duality. Actually, Peter calls it false duality. It's when you have A or B to a solution. You know, there's never A or B. You know, they give you four multiple choice questions on the SATs or whatever exam they are. But usually, you know, every question should have at least four options. Is there anything, you, any experiences or stories that you saw within either of the organizations you've been a part of where they did that well? Oh, I mean, you know, up in New England. Actually, we did it really well in Cleveland when Bill was there. I think New England was there. We knew who we were. We are going to be a big physical football team who could run fast. Never debate about that. When I wasn't in organizations that had that, I was really bad at my job because I don't function well in that environment. Can you go on a little bit? That's interesting. Look, you know, I'm not the history teacher that's going to teach the world's flat around. Like I have convictions, right? And so I believe things should be done a certain way. And I've got enough experience in terms of doing it that way that I think it's the right way. And when you're asking me to fake it, to go this other way, I'm not as authentic and I won't be as effective. Yeah, I thought some of the things that were interesting with uh, that you shared in your book as well, which is just like the coaches making tough decisions around, we don't have to actually keep this player. I think there was one or two times with Belichick where there's a player who, I don't know if it was more money or just wasn't a team fit. And they're like, all right, well, we'll just find someone else. I know for myself as a, as a run a company and, and other teams, it's like, well, I got to keep this person. They're so important versus the actual team where I think that that's probably where they've had a lot of success as coaches. Put the team first comes back to those four principles, right? Put the team first. What's most important for the team? You know, people do that all the time. Talent never wins. Talent is not what's going to win. You know, the U.S. Olympic team in 1980 got beat two weeks earlier by the Russians in Madison Square Garden, 13 to 1. Now, in those two weeks before they beat them, 4 to 3, they didn't add new talent. They became together as a team. So that's the challenge. How do you build a team? It isn't just collect a bunch of talent. We're going to be better. And when you get these big organizations, how do you manage them? Like, how do you manage it? You can't manage them. There's too many people. That was actually something really surprising because I'm a total football noob. Like, I, I'm nowhere near anywhere your level. And, and I'm just like a couch guy that watches it. Oh, I don't know. I don't get this. I think one of the things that, that maybe not for you, but for me, that was actually most surprising about the book was actually the intricacies of the NFL. And like, you had that whole middle section where you're like, here's 30 or I don't know hundreds of questions that a, every head coach needs to answer, like the food for off season or their training regimen. And I put that in there because I wanted people to realize that unless you're giving thought to the job you're going to have, then how can you have the job? You know, like, shouldn't that be on the, t- like, for example, one of the things in there, people ask me all the time, like, who cares who gives the Jersey numbers out? Well, that's really important because Marines fight for Marines. Great organizations know their history. You go to the Air Force Academy, there's a wall there that has all the great pilots who have flown to the death. They want you to remember the fallen heroes. If you know that number 42 of the 49ers, and you're wearing that jersey, that Ronnie Lott wore that same jersey you're wearing, and he was a great player. you got to know that. You're representing Ronnie Lott. You're representing the 49ers. You're representing a greatness. 
That's how you build history. That's how you build a bond. That's how things happen. What are some of the intricacies or things that you think most people don't realize? Like, I, I think that that was a, a big takeaway for me was the preparation, just like the amount of things that have to be thought of to build an excellent NFL team, which is the same as building an excellent business. Oh, I think there's always things that, you know, when you get into this, it's the, the Marcus Aurelius has this great quote, the secret to all victory lies in the organization, the non-obvious. And so the non-obvious is what you must search for. So if you own a company or you own a football team, you got to figure out what's the non-obvious. In football, it happens all the time. It's the non-obvious is for most people would say, well, who's in the lead, right? No, well, no, there's two facets of a game. Who's in the lead? Who's in control? Those are two different things. Third downs in the red zone or third downs at midfield. Those are two different things. So you see to study and peel back what's the non-obvious things. And the only way you do that, Noah, is you go back and figure out why you won and why you lost. At every quarter, you should figure out why you're successful, why you're not. And you can adjust to it. I'm guessing they'd probably do that more than most, which is these debriefs and, and relearnings like at halftime and at the end of games every time. I don't think they do because I think as Jackson Brown once said in one of the songs, we forget about the losses and exaggerate the wins. So I think there's more of that <laughs> in the NFL. I mean, I guess you observed with Walsh and Belichick, I don't know, Davis as much, that they did go back and revisit. Where Davis was brilliant at was building a team that he knew was going to have to compete to win a title. It's not one thing to win your division. It's not one thing to beat the team in front of you. It's a team that's the champion. So how do you build a team that can beat the champion? That takes vision. I mean, what were the paragraphs for Belichick's last team when you were there? Oh, easy. Yeah, we are going to be, I mean, I can get where I still have the paper he wrote in Cleveland. We are going to be a big, physical, tough football team that can play competitively in any type of weather that has mental toughness that gets better as the year goes along. Oof, that sounds good. I mean, I, I will say just to highlight two things from your book that, that stood out for me, in addition to this, was winning on the edge. You know, I think you started the book off with the Seattle win versus the Patriots. Yeah. I'd say as a consumer, I'm like, oh, wow, that was a lucky thing. And I think what you highlighted from that was that Belichick planned for this. He actually prepared right. for that type of scenario. Right. That's something that was highly undervalued in business, which I, I want to get better at. And I think people didn't realize like they planned for that that interception and the coin tosses. Can you share the coin toss where I think he always chooses to receive? I was trying to explain it to my girlfriend and it's like, I thought maybe you can explain better why you always choose to receive the football. You know, so football is like chess, right? And if you have the white pieces of chess, you have an advantage. You should at least, if the players are similar in, in talent, then white to black, white should at least get a draw or a win because he moves first. Yes. So most people think since football and chess are similar, and whoever has the ball first and score first wins. But there's a part, again, this is the non-obvious. There's the, what I call the middle eight, which are the, the final four minutes of the first half and the first four minutes of the second half. Those eight minutes really determine the outcome of the game. The number one stat in football in determining who is the best teams is first half point differential, which means this. Whoever scores the most points and gives up the least amount of points in the first half and goes into halftime with the lead is a team that will go to the Super Bowl. Last year, it was the Rams in Kansas City. New England was third. The year before, it was New England and Philadelphia. The year before that, it was New England and Atlanta. Those teams play from in front. Bill Walsh's whole theory of football was we are going to build the lead and we're going to add to the lead in the second half. Brilliant. That is the fundamental belief of the middle eight. And if you can get the ball to end the half, let's say you're, say you're winning 14 to 10 and you get the ball at the end of the half and you score a touchdown, 
You've just made it 21 to 10. Hard to come back from that. But not only did you make it 21 to 10, you get the ball to start the second half. And say you score again, you make it 28 to 10 with eight minutes to go in the third quarter. You're winning that game. 99% of the time, you're winning that game. You've controlled the middle eight. You lost the toss or you defer the toss. You've given up the white pieces, but you've got the white pieces back by the way you manage the middle eight. Yeah, I thought that was such a strong, it was so interesting because I think most people don't ever think about that in sports. But I thought about in the parallel for business, it's there's an edge, right? Like you, you recommend the book, Finding the Winning Edge. It's like, how did you turn the toss into an advantage? I think you you talked, there's another one, I think with the weather. Oh, no, 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 with the trick play. The most surprising thing about the trick play was not the play, but the fact that he told the referee and the league office ahead of time. Right. Prepared. I mean, there's no, you know, he's crossed his I's and dotted his T's. There's no stone left unturned. How has that impacted you? Do you feel like you become much more thorough or were you always like that yourself? No, I, I mean, no, I think he is so thorough and he forces you to think, again, it's that false duality. A, B, C, D. It's the details that matter. It's all the same thing with Walsh. Success lies in the details. Speaking of Walsh, one thing that stuck with me, and I'm still trying to figure it out, is to teach. You said he was an amazing teacher, and that's how he identified himself. I think what I sometimes I'm noticing is like how to start teaching. I oh, fuck. That's a weird way of putting it. But how did these people teach their the other coaches and, and teach the players? Like, and how did they know what to teach? I think that's something that I'm, I'm trying to think through myself. I think that's always the hard thing. I think you have to be curious to stay up on top of it. I mean, football is not the same game it was 10 years ago. It's not the same game it was 20 years. So you can't teach the same history lesson. You've got to change, right? So you've got to stay contemporary and you've got to be curious and you've got to change through technology your teaching methods. If you do through te- use technology to your advantage, it certainly can help. It's the second area of leadership that's so important. You know, it's what I call command of the message. And so you've got to command the message somehow, some way. And you just can't be dry, like in the scene in Ferris Bueller, where, you know, Bueller, Bueller, everybody's half asleep when the guy's talking, right? You got to have some energy. You got to have some passion. And you've got to be able to sell it. What's the first part of leadership? It's called command of attention, which means you have that plan. That's two paragraphs. That's what leaders have. This is what I am. You hire me. This is what you're getting. And then command of the message is I explain it. Command of the process, I make sure it's being put into place. Command of trust is you're going to trust me to make sure that I make consistent decisions. Those four areas is really what builds culture. I know both your sons are into coaching. What are you observing how uh, coaching is changing from their experience? I think that, you know, obviously the kids that you're coaching, they are different. You know, nobody's sitting at home. There's a thousand different things going on. The phone technology is innovative space. But at the core, players respect knowledge. And this is what I've told my sons. Players only respect knowledge. They don't care if you're 100 years old, if you're 10 years old. You can make them better, they'll listen. And that's anything in life. You know, if you can make people better at what they do, people will listen to you. It's when you can't do that is when you lose your audience. That's interesting. So staying ahead of the players, staying ahead, researching the teams. How you can convince them that when you're coaching them, you're not criticizing them. Big challenge, right? How do you tell your employees when they do something wrong? Look, I'm not criticizing you. I'm coaching you. Like, you've got to take this information in a different way. I told my two sons their whole life, I'm not criticizing you. I'm coaching you. I'm trying to make you better. Once you get that spirit resolved in your organization, you'll grow. And that's how your teaching will grow. That's actually interesting. So how did you do that? Were you encouraged as teaching, like with your sons or with the players that you worked with? 
You've got to break down that wall of resentment that you never tell me I'm doing good. No, you are doing good, but here's where you can be better. Here's where you can be better. If you need to hear you're doing good all the time, then why you don't need me. Positive reinforcement's great, but technical coaching and improvement is what people gravitate to. Mm. I guess, is that a function of that you should tell them where they need to be or ask them where they want to go? I think a little bit of both. I think it's both. Look, if it means more to me than it means to you, then we're wasting our time. <laughs> yeah. I think that kind of goes full circle back to you being a garbage man versus being a you know player at personnel and slash writer. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm curious in, in wrapping this up and moving forward, like how are you one, I'd say with my audience and myself, like wh- where could we be the most helpful for you? Check out Gridiron Genius is the podcast. Like, Yeah, I do a podcast called GM Shuffle. It's on Cadence 13. It's football, it's some pop culture, it's leadership, it's books. We talk a little bit of everything, especially during the off season when there's more time to talk and not always about football. I write for The Athletic. I also work for Vegas Stats and Information Network, which is a it helps the betters improve, which I absolutely love. I don't bet, but I love it because it's an information network. It's Bloomberg News for the better. And I feel like my job has always been an analyst. My job has always been to analyze football teams. So if I tell you Team A is better than Team B, I'm not telling you to bet them. I'm just telling you they're better. I'm not telling you to buy the stock. I'm telling you that the stock's better than this team. And then my book with Iron Genius. Which would be a good Father's Day gift. That's what I would be encouraging. <laughs> I think it's a great Father's Day gift, but frankly, I think it's a great gift for anyone who wants to learn how to run a successful organization. That's why I was excited to get you on here and share that. Do you have a website? And not yet. I'm working on one now. I should have one probably sometime in the middle of June. I've been working on that. I, you know, I've gone from being, I have so many different, what I call silos of people that I work for, that I need to kind of have one landing spot. So I'm going to have a a website, a homepage where people can, if they want me to speak, which I love doing, come in to consult businesses, which I love doing, they can reach me and talk to me there. I have my Twitter, my DM open on Twitter so people, you know, can reach me there too at M Lombardi NFL. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, offline or this online, when you, as you get your site up, let me know. I can help you grow your mailing list. And I've worked with Ryan and other people. Oh, that'd be awesome. So feel free. Thank you. That's what my company does. We have our own mailing list and then we give people the tools to do it themselves. So obviously I want, I want to help you out to spread your... Thank you. I still am curious, man. Like, I guess one thing I was I was curious about is like, how did you not get nervous that you're going to make money? Because, you know, your, your career is like you worked for free and then you left, you know, the Patriots. Wait. I've never been motivated by money. I've never been motivated by money. I know that I, ch- I went into personnel, which was not making as much money as coaching. I should have stayed in coaching. I've lived a very comfortable life. I've never really thought about it. I've never been driven by, I got to make an extra dollar here or there. I've always been driven by, I want to be good at something. That's an amazing message because I think that'll also probably lead you to make a good amount of money and have a great life. Yeah, because if you like what you do and you have confidence in what you do, people want to be around you. If you're always pissed off because somebody's making $10 more than you, then nobody wants to be around. No, that's a great message. I want everyone to go buy Gridiron Genius for Father's Day, Mother's Day, any day of the week. Check out the GM Shuffle podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. That was awesome, man. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate it. I'm sorry I was late today, but I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, go check out Mike Lombardi on Twitter at MLombardiNFL and buy his book, Gridiron Genius. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go play tackle football together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing me, podcast at okdork.com. I read every single one that you're... I read almost all of them. Final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com, as always, for making these podcasts sound so amazing. And thanks to Sean, David, and Dean at the Dork team, who are bomb. 
And special shout out to Elona and Chris Gullion at AppSumo this week. Amazing content creators, emailers, and marketers, and just damn good people. What's your favorite toothpaste? <laughs>